Well, good morning. This morning we continue our series on the book of Romans and the hope of the gospel as we look at chapters 6 and following. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 were largely about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 are largely about what God is doing in us through Christ and the Spirit. And we've spent a lot of time on what God has done for us, a lot of time on justification. Just think what we've seen in chapters 1 to 3, we've seen the need for justification because of our sin. Chapter 4, we saw the provision of justification through the cross. Chapter 5, we saw the blessings of justification. But there's more to the Christian life than justification. Remember, justification is being declared in the rights. God declaring us forgiven. God declaring us righteous because what Jesus has done on our behalf. Foundational and vital, but there's more. There's what we call sanctification, which is God transforming us over time into the image of Jesus. It's really important to get these two things, these two truths distinguished in our minds if we're going to grow as the Lord wants us to grow. Justification is about being freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is about being freed from the power of sin. Justification is being declared righteous. Sanctification is being made righteous. Justification is our position before God. Sanctification is our practice before God. Justification is immediate. Sanctification is a process. Justification happens outside of us. Sanctification happens inside of us. Here's how Pastor Andy Davis puts it. He says, in justification, our effort and works are unnecessary and unwelcome. In sanctification, our works are essential, celebrated, and commanded. So again, justification is the foundation. We are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of our sanctification, but both are vital for the Christian life. Another way of getting this point across is using grammar. So maybe you've heard of the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood is just the statement of fact. It is what is. It's a statement of fact. The cat is on the mat. It's saying what is. Romans 1 to 5 is largely indicative. What God has done for us. Then we have the imperative. What we are to do. The commandment. Put the cat on the mat. And it's really important for us to get any assurance and joy and any progress to know that the indicative. What God has done for us in Christ is the ground, is the basis, is the reason for the imperative. We always start with the indicative. The indicative is the root. The imperative is the fruits. That's why Romans is structured the way it is. And it's really important for us to not limit grace. Sing about grace, we celebrate grace. Grace fuels both the indicative and the imperative. Grace justifies and grace sanctifies. Grace is unmerited favor, but grace is also a transforming power. It's pardon, sins forgiven, and power. Sin's dominion being let loose on our lives, being loosened from its grip. We've been freed. Grace frees us from the penalty of sin. It frees us from the power of sin. And one day, I can't wait, it'll free us from the presence of sin. And the main point of our section this morning is we as believers are freed from the power of sin because of Jesus Christ. We're in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 886. Let's read Romans 6, 1 to 14. 
what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So we're freed from the power of sin, and we'll see in a few ways we're freed from the power of sin because we've died with Christ. We're freed from the power of sin because we've been united with Christ, and we're freed from the power of sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace. So first, we're freed from the power of sin because we've died with Christ. Verses 1 to 4, look with me again at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul here anticipates a question. He anticipates an objection. Paul, if it's all about grace, as you've been saying in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, can I just keep living any way I want? As the poet W.H. Auden has one of his characters say, he says, quote, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Is he right? I mean, look what he said there in chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So should we just keep sinning so that grace might abound? What's the answer? By no means. There really is no stronger way of saying no. Some of your translations may say, God forbid, may it never be. Are you out of your mind? Are you cray-cray? No. But we need to ask, though, if this objection doesn't come when we're sharing the gospel and when we're talking about grace, if this objection doesn't come that, hey, well, if if God just forgives, can I do, can I live however I want, then we might not actually be preaching grace. Because anywhere grace, grace is preached, this sort of objection will come. But the answer is a strong and decisive no way. As my daughter likes to say, no way hose way. How could we, he asks. We've died with sin. If we're believers, we've experienced a transfer so radical that the language of dying is used. 
We have died to sin. It is no longer the ruling power over our lives. It once was, it is no longer. Sin no longer reigns over us. Now grace reigns, right? That's how he concluded. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since we've died to sin, we can no longer live in it. And he's not saying we will never sin as believers, but we won't live in sin, meaning a lifestyle. We won't live a lifestyle of sin. We won't habitually sin. We won't willingly sin over and over. In other words, we won't have unrepentant sin. We're going to still battle sin till the resurrection, but we no longer tolerate it. We now hate it and we fight it with everything that we are. I often tell you the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the presence or absence of sin. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is Christians hate their sin. Non-Christians are okay with it. Here's how John puts it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him, that is Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Boy, that's important in Abilene, Texas. Lots of people have had an experience with Jesus. Lots of people in Abilene say they're Christians. Some of them attend a church. Many of them have prayed a prayer. Many of them have been baptized. How do we know if someone's a true Christian? John says, no one who's been born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. If we claim to be a believer, yet there's no life change, we have good reasons to ask, are we really a believer? We all have neighbors and friends and families who claim to be believers. And if their life is no different than a pagan's life, we have good reason to ask. How do you know that you know the Lord? Because we hate our sin and we refuse to continue in it, John says. Paul says we've died to sin. We've been united to Christ. That's how we get the power to die to sins right there in verse 3. We died to sin, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And notice what he, he starts there in verse 3 with a question, and it's sort of an indicting question. And he'll do it a few times. Do you not know? Don't you know? You need to know this. If you really knew, if you really understood the gospel, you wouldn't be asking this sort of question. You should know. Paul expects the church, all of us, to be full of theologians. Now, imperfect and always growing theologians, but theologians nonetheless, always growing in our understanding of what God's done for us in Christ and what it means for our lives. That's why in Colossians, he prays. Right off the bat, he prays that the church would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And all spiritual wisdom and understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God. Don't you know, he says. Philippians, he prays that our love will abound with all knowledge and discernment. Don't you know? Don't you know we were baptized into union with Christ, baptized into his death? 
buried with him into death so that just as he was raised, we too might live new lives. This is one of the reasons why we are Baptists here in this church. It's why we practiced immersion as baptism. It's the imagery of going down, being buried with Christ and being raised to walk as he was raised. What's true of him is true of those who've trusted him. We've died, we've been raised with Christ. Sometimes we'll ask one another, hey, when did you get saved? According to this verse, a right answer could be 2,000 years ago. Because when he died, I died. When he was raised, I was raised. There's a lot of debate about this word here, baptism, that Paul uses, whether it's water baptism or spirit baptism. Uh, water's not mentioned, and he mentions baptism in 1 Corinthians 12 about the baptism of the spirits, and he doesn't refer to water. Either way, both occur at conversion. Unbaptized Christians in the first century were virtually non-existence. Paul may be pointing to the spiritual reality that baptism represents, union with Christ. Jesus in Mark 10 talks about his death as a baptism. So the word baptism can be used in various ways. I do think, though, he probably is talking about water baptism here. But he's not giving any salvific value to baptism. Just think of where we've been in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. He has so emphasized justification by faith that it's just taken for granted here. Union with Christ by faith is visibly signified by baptism. Baptism's not the theme of the chapter. In fact, he doesn't mention it again. Faith is assumed here. Faith, repentance, the gift of the Spirit, baptism, confessing Jesus as the Lord. These are all various ways that the New Testament will describe becoming a Christian, being converted. It doesn't have to say everything every time. And so here in Romans 6, faith is assumed to lead to baptism. And baptism always assumes faith. Again, it's why we're a Baptist church. It's why we don't baptize babies. But notice the imagery here. At baptism, we experienced a death. We died with him. Baptized into Christ's death. Buried with him. And just think about burial. Burial is a decisive end. We've all lost loved ones. We have a service. We talk. What's the final chapter? We go to the graveside. That's the decisive end. That's the definitive end. That's the final goodbye. It's the seal on death. And our old self is buried with Christ. And baptism signifies that death. And that burial. It was the end of us. It was the end of the old us. In the late 1800s, there was this Georgia girl, this Georgia Bell named Carrie. I read about her story recently. She became a Christian and she was going to be baptized in this creek out, outside the church. And she took this call to consider her old self as dead very seriously. And she had her best friend who was an unbeliever. She used to run around with, used to get in trouble with. And this girl, Carrie, told her friend that she was now a follower of Christ and their relationship would have to be different from now on. They would not go on as they used to go on. Her friend was Julia. And Carrie goes and she's heading to get baptized and she's about knee deep with the pastor and she asks the pastor to stop. And she turned around to those on the bank and she waves her hand. And she says, farewell. Farewell, young friends. Farewell, Julia. Here's how one friend recounts what happened. They say the effect was electrical. The whole audience convulsed, tears rained from eyes, unused to weeping. Upon coming out of the water, Julia, the unbelieving friend, rushed forward to meet her friend, embracing her, crying in agonizing tones. Oh, Carrie, you must not leave me. And she asked the minister that she would pray. Carrie knew that baptism is a death to our old self. 
We've died with him. We've been crucified. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ now lives in me. We pass through the waters and are raised. We have an allusion here to the Exodus, right? A passing through the waters of judgment, freedom from not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin, a new way of living. And we're no longer living in sin. Now we're walking in obedience. But notice what he does here. Notice something. Remember, this section begins with a concern about taking advantage of grace. Okay, you're preaching grace. Does that mean we can live however we want? No. Notice how the Spirit responds. I think many believers would respond to this objection with what? Long list of rules. No, no, we're going to keep you from living in sin by giving this long list of rules. We're going to lay down the law. But what does Paul do to answer the objection? You've been preaching all this grace and all this Jesus and all this death and resurrection. Does that mean we can live however we want? Verse 3 and 4, what does he do? He preaches more death and resurrection. He goes back to the gospel because he knows that at the end of the day, the gospel is the engine of change. It's not rules that change the heart. It's grace. Grace taught our hearts to fear. It was grace that's going to lead us home. This gospel, it's for believers too. That's why he goes back to the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 15? Paul's eager to go to Rome, to the church at Rome, to do what? Preach the gospel. Because believers need the gospel just as much as unbelievers. We need it every day. Much like this imaginary objector here in Romans 6, sometime, one time someone... Uh, accused John Bunyan. John Bunyan was in prison. He was a Baptist preacher, probably most famously known for writing Pilgrim's Progress, loved to preach grace, loved to preach the gospel. And someone said, listen, man, if you keep preaching grace, you keep assuring people that God loves them because of the cross, they're going to do whatever they want. He replied, no, they will do whatever he wants. Because the law, it sets our course. We need commandments, but it's Grace that will fill our cells. Commands lay down the rails, but the gospel is the engine. And so we go to the gospel again and again and again. The gospel is not the door. The gospel is the whole house. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. The gospel, this ain't the intro. This is the entree. We don't move on. Freed from the power of sin because we've died with Christ. Number two, we're freed from the power of sin because we're united to Christ. We've died with him, we're united to him. Look at verse five, chapter six, verse five. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united to Christ through faith, signified in baptism. What's true of him is now true of us. Because we died with him, we will certainly be raised. He says, certainly. Why is it certainly? Because our resurrection is as guaranteed by his resurrection. Because he was raised, we will be raised. He's the first fruits. You farmers will know that. What does the first fruits mean? It means more is coming. His resurrection was the first. More are coming. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the down payment. Because he was raised we will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's us. Our hope is as sure as the tomb is empty. Because he died, we died. Because he was raised, we will be raised. Verse 6, we know that our old self 
was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And there he goes again. We know, we know this. We know that our old self was crucified. The old self is the unregenerate person. It's the old self who lived under the power of sin. Behind this old self, new self is what we saw last week in chapter 5, 12 to 21. Behind the old self is Adam. Behind the new self is Christ. The old self is who we were in Adam. We're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. But again, until the resurrection, the temptation to live in Adam will remain, which is why some passages will speak of us having put off the old self indicative it's done but others will command us imperative to put on the new self put off the old self let me read just a couple colossians chapter 3 verse 9 paul says do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self that happened when you became a christian with its practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator it's a done deal Colossians 3 but Ephesians chapter 4 says that we are to put off our old self imperative which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and here's a command to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness so because here we are, Jesus has come, he's redeemed us, we have the spirit, but we're in this time between the times, Jesus left it here, we're, we're between the two comings of Jesus and this already not yet. We have put off the old self, yet we're commanded to put off the old self. We've got to keep renewing our minds, we've got to keep fighting sin, we're not there yet. But notice he says here, the old self was crucified. The old you met its fate on that hill on Golgotha and baptism was the funeral ceremony for that old self that old self that was focused on self second Corinthians 5 says one of the reasons Jesus died was to free us from living for ourselves that we would no longer live for ourselves but would live for him your old narcissist went from gazing into the water to being drowned in the water the baptismal waters your old self is dead crucified why he says that the body of sin might be destroyed that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, he's not talking about our bodies being inherently sinful. That would be Gnostic, not biblical. The body is good, created good. He's talking about the body that's ruled by sin or the body that's controlled by sin, our sinful self. Oftentimes, our sin will express itself through our bodies. And one of the reasons here for the gospel is that that body of sin might be done away with, freed from sin, set free, again, from the power of sin. It is now, for a believer, it's now against our nature to sin. We talk about total depravity. Unbelievers, Romans chapter 3, are totally depraved. Christians are not. No longer totally depraved. They've been made new. And so now that we have the Spirit, we've been born again, it's now against our nature to sin. Think about it. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, they were able not to sin. After the fall... We are unable not to sin. Now, after conversion, we are now able not to sin. 
And at glorification, we will be unable to sin. (laughs) Freed from his presence totally. Look at verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ died once, will not happen again. Death does not reign over him. He reigns over death. He says in John's revelation, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus, our Lord says, I have the keys of death and Hades. We will live because he lives again. What's true of him is true of us. Verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Incredibly, we have the first command of the letter to Romans. Six chapters and 11 verses end. The command there is consider. Just think, zoom out for a minute. Think how different this is from most versions of pop Christianity. Most versions of pop Christianity is only application. It's only commands. Now, some of you grew up in legalistic churches and the old school legalism, you know, it had an oversized suit and it was full of prohibitions. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Drink, dance or chew or go with girls or do. On and on and on. But really, many churches, many of even modern mega churches are filled with legalism. It's just no longer in oversized suits and prohibitions. It's now in skinny jeans and it's filled with application, filled with life tips, life hacks, five steps for this, 10 tips for that. Be a better you, be a better spouse, be a better parent, be a better user of technology, be a better Sabbath keeper. But it's B, 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 B. It's the killer bees. And it ends up being just a a shiny version of legalism. It ends up being moralism instead of the gospel. But what does the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul do here? He doesn't start with the bees. He doesn't start with application. He starts with six chapters of done before he gets around to the do's of the Christian life. He starts with indicative before he gets to imperative. He starts with doctrine before he gets on to what we need to be about. That order matters, friends. And when he finally does get to the commands, notice this first one is a command to think. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Count yourself, remember yourself, realize yourself dead to sin. So as John Stott puts it, the major secret of holy living is in the mind. It's knowing who we are. It's having right theology. Paul expects this. That's why he says in verse 3, Chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know? That's why he says again in verse 6, we know. That's why he says there in verse 9, we know. We've got to know these things. The issue is not a lack of willpower so much as it is a lack of understanding of the gospel, a lack of understanding of who we are in Christ, that we're united to him, not because of our works, but because of faith, that we're declared in the right, not because of our performance, but because of faith in Jesus. We're freed from sin's power, so we're to regard, we're to reckon, we're to ponder, we're to calculate, we're to grasp these truths. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's the command. But notice again, verse 2. Chapter 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Notice, indicative, 
You have died to sin if you're a Christian. Notice verse 11, imperative. Consider yourselves dead to sin. We've died to sin, but again, since we're not yet in the resurrection body, we still fight sin. We must now now count ourselves dead to sin, reckon ourselves. We must believe, in other words, everything that we've already learned from Romans 1 to 5. We must believe who we are in Christ. We must remember if we're going to get on, right? That's why Jesus left us with two ordinances. Jesus left his church with two ordinances, and both of them are focused on us remembering what happened at Calvary. Are they not? Baptism. When someone becomes a Christian, we baptize them by water, picturing what happened. Death, burial, resurrection. Communion. Do this in remembrance of me, because as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. Remember, remember the gospel, because we're prone to wander Lord I feel it you have died to sin indicative consider yourself dead to sin imperative Bible does this all the time first Corinthians 5 7 says cleanse is your command cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened You are unleavened, remain unleavened. Galatians 5, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He basically says, if you live by the Spirit, let us live by the Spirit. Indicative imperative. Your old self is dead. Kill your old self. You have put off the old self, so put off the old self. Ephesians 5, verse 8. You are light in the Lord, walk in as children of light. In other words, the command is really be who you are in Christ. Become who you are. Be who you are becoming. Let your behavior match your new identity. Work out what God has worked in. Michael Bird tells a story of Alexander the Great. He couldn't sleep one night, and so he goes walking around the campsite. He finds a guard who had fallen asleep. He was on post, standing post, and he went to sleep. It was, a, it was an offense executable by death and said he just asked him what's your name son and he says Alexander Alexander the Great is asking the sleeping guard what's your name and his name's Alexander and he repeats himself a couple what's your name Alexander and he said if your name is Alexander either change your name or change your behavior so it is with us we've got to remind ourselves who we are become who you are becoming in Christ we've got to preach the gospel every day to ourselves we're dead to sin Doesn't feel that way often, right? That's why it's so important to consider, to reckon yourself dead to sin. There was an entomologist named Wilson, E.O. Wilson, and he was doing some research on ants. Some of you may know that ants communicate by releasing pheromones, these chemicals that will indicate what's happening in the situation. So if there's danger near ants, they'll release the danger pheromone. I'm curious to know what that might smell like. Maybe gasoline. If they found some food, someone scored some, some food, they release a food pheromone. I, I just imagine that probably smells like the cookie factory. Everybody comes, you know, everybody, all right, we got it. If, someone's, if an ant's ready to mate, they release a pheromone. It's like an ant version of Calvin Klein. They also have this death pheromone. And so if an ant is dying, 
it releases a certain pheromone. So Dr. Wilson sprayed this death pheromone. Again, I'd love to know what it smells like. Dirty diapers or spoiled milk or cafeteria in a nursing home or something. Sprays that pheromone on an ant. Takes it, removes it from the, the bed, sprays it and puts it back in. And so what would happen is these ants would remove the ants from the, the bed and go and kind of put it in a little ant graveyard of sorts. So ant, you know, dusts himself off, goes back. The group then picks them up, takes them out because they're programmed to see this pheromone. He was alive and well. He was considered dead. So we must count ourselves dead, even though sin often seems alive and well. It's a matter of the battle of the mind to remember who we are in Christ. We are identity amnesiacs. Yesterday, I took the fam to see Toy Story 4, and some of you have seen it. If not, you've probably seen the preview. And the, the new guy is Forky, right? Forky's made of trash. If not, you'll see it. He's made of trash, but he just can't get over the fact. He's, he's been actually reckoned a new creation. Reckoned a new creation by the only one that matters, Bonnie. But he just can't get over the fact that he used to be trash, and so he keeps trying to jump in trash cans. The message, quit trying to jump in the trash can. You've been made new. That's us. We can no longer pursue sin. We're someone different. Our nature's been different. We've been dead to sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. We've been freed from the power of sin because we've been united with the one who has had dominion over sin and death, Jesus Christ. Third, we're freed from the power of sin because we're under grace, not law. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice thinking in verse 11, consider yourself now, thinking must lead to action. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That is the body, this body, the mortal one as opposed to the immortal one. This one as opposed to the resurrection body. Don't let sin reign in, in your body. It's the same body ruled by sin in verse 6. And he means our whole selves. Don't let sin reign. In other words, turn from sin. In other words, live a life of repentance. Turning from sin towards the Lord. Repentance isn't something we just do at the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is the Christian life. Turn from it. Or he's going to say in chapter 8, look over at verse 13. There at the end... Verse 13, put to death the deed to the body. Don't let sin reign. Put sin to death. Because he says here that sin wants you to obey it. Sin is this power, remember in Romans. Sin wants your obedience. Sin wants you to obey it. And notice it doesn't just say obey it. Obey it, it says obey its passions, its desires, evil desires. And friends, that's where sin always starts. Sin always starts at the motive level, at the desire level. If we're really going to be about the, the business of repentance, we can't just try to stop external activities, right? It's just chopping off the, the weeds. It looks nice for a little bit, but you got to get to the root, the desire level, the motive level. It's where sin always begins. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's the same word, by the way. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. There's the order right there. There's the progression. Desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin destroys everything it can. But we need to back it up a little bit. 
destruction, the action of sin, the desire. Sin wants us to obey its passions. So don't let sin reign, but he doesn't just put down negative prohibitions. He has a positive call. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It says, don't offer any part of you to sin. Rather, offer yourselves to God. Tell him, Lord, I am yours, all of me. This word here for present or this word for offer, maybe your translation puts it. It's the word for priestly sacrifice in the Old Testament. Priests would go when they would present the offering, present the sacrifice. We are to lay down our lives, present ourselves to him. Romans 12, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We present our members, our body parts, not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness. Our eyes and what we will allow in them, our ears and what we will allow in them, our mouths, what we will proceed from them, our hands and what we will do with them, our feet and where we will go, our mind and what will dominate our thoughts, our sexual organs and how we will use them, all of it, every bit of us, our whole selves, presented to God as instruments of righteousness, all for the glory of God, every part of us, no compartmentalization, all of us, If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And it's a battle, right? This is a constant battle. If you're walking with the Lord, there will be a battle. There's no battle. I wonder, do you have the spirit of God? Because if you have the spirit of God, that spirit will be battling the flesh. Constantly saying no to temptation and yes to God. Yes, you are freed from the power of sin, but you still must fight. Kathy Greed puts it, since we're no longer in sin, we should no longer let sin in us. Doug Moo, what we were in Adam is no longer more, but until heaven, the temptation to live in Adam always remains. Or as John Wesley put it, sin doesn't reign over a believer, but it does remain. We're like slaves. We've been freed, but we still jump at our old master's voice. We're like a man with a healed leg, but we still limp out of habits. Like a freed prisoner who still wakes up at prison hours. Don't let sin reign. You now have the ability as a believer to not let sin reign. And then Paul grounds this imperative with yet another indicative. Look at verse 14. For sin will, this is a promise, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Because of Christ, we've experienced a change of lordship. We're freed from the power of sin. Verse 12 says, don't let sin reign. Verse 14 promises the power of sin will not reign. It will not have dominion over a believer. This is a guarantee. True believers in Jesus Christ, we will continue to battle sin, but our lives are largely victorious over sin. Sin is no longer our master. And then he gives another reason, because you're not under law. You're under grace. It's not what you'd expect from him, right? If you're tracking along here, you might think he would say, for you're no longer under sin, but under grace. But he says, under law. But we've seen in Romans so far the connection between sin and the law, right? Chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 5, verse 20 from last week. The law came in to increase sin. We'll see more of it in chapter 7. He says, we're no longer under the law. 
See, law and grace are contrasting eras in God's plan. They're contrasting salvation historical powers in God's plan. Another way of saying that is we're no longer under the old covenant. We're now under the new covenant. We're no longer under the law, law of Moses. We're now under grace. Another way of saying that is we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. John 1 says it this way. 117, out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're no longer under the law. We're now under grace after the coming of Jesus in the spirit. Friend, if you're here and you don't know this liberating power of Jesus Christ, if you feel enslaved to your passions, if you just feel stuck, Jesus offers redemption. Jesus offers freedom. You can change by the power of the gospel. You are surrounded by stories of change. Freedom from enslavements to the glory of Jesus Christ. I'm one of them. You can do it. You can turn to Christ today. You can trust him where you are. Ask him, free me from my sin. Forgive me of the penalty that I deserve. Free me from the power that I can't shake on my own. You can trust him right where you are. And if you do that, the next step is to signify it visibly through believer's baptism. An outward expression of your union with Christ by faith. Believers, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus took it in our place. We have been freed from the power of sin. Not yet freed from the presence of sin, but have been freed from the dominating power of sin. As we sing, Jesus is of sin, the double cure. He saves from wrath and he makes us pure. He justifies us and he sanctifies us. As we also sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The sin's already been canceled because of the cross. Now he breaks the power because of union with Christ and the spirits. And so the normal pattern of the Christian life ought to be one of victory. It ought to be one of sanctification, of increased growth, of increased maturity of faith. I wonder, believer, are you living in this reality? Or is there some sin that you are allowing to dominate you? Are you letting sin reign in your body? Is there some sin you're toying with? Is there some known sin that the Spirit right now is bringing to your mind? Some known sin that you've been tolerating? The good news is you have the power to turn from it. The commandment is you need to turn from it. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Consider yourself dead to sin. Do not present yourselves to sin. Turn from it. Turn from it. Let this morning be a line in the sand moment. You know what? I'm done with this trajectory. True life and true joy are found in Jesus Christ, not in sin. And you know that. That's the thing you know. And so this morning resolve to follow the Lord here and consider yourselves dead to sin. And now don't let sin reign. Turn from it. Do not no longer presenting your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. If you're a believer, you're freed from its dominance. Sin will not be your master because you're not under the law. You're under grace. Jesus died to free you from both sin's penalty and sin's power. And so run from sin, turn from sin, resolve. And so I want to take just a couple moments as we transition to close 
through corporate worship. And uh, I want to pray. And I just want us to take a, a moment of reflection, a moment of, of self-examination. And just ask yourself, are, is there known sin in my life that I've been toying with, that I've been tolerating? And now is the time. Confess it to the Lord. Lord, I confess, you're right. I know better. You're right. It's time to repent. It's time to turn from this. Would you give me the grace to do it?